Thanks for listening to the GCC Sermon Podcast. We'd love to meet you for worship on Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visit georgetownchristian.org for more info. Hey, Georgetown Christian, can you say by you? All right, uh, we'll get back to that and maybe make some improvements on it. Uh, some uh, people like to share on social media this week that your pastor wants you to be as excited about church as you are the Super Bowl, and uh, those really swift-minded and sharp-tongued people say, maybe then, when your pastor makes a good point, you should dump Gatorade over his head. And I want to thank Teresa Simmons for not dumping Gatorade, but handing me Gatorade because I don't look good with Gatorade over my head. Uh, that's not to say anything of this appearance, but yeah, whew, we don't need any more Gatorade. So um, I have never built a house before. Maybe some of you have built a house before. Um, when I'm on a job site, usually I'm like the gopher, or if I'm lucky, uh, the apprentice. When I have someone patient like Brad Swine or Rusty Deming or John Bruns to teach me maybe a little bit about what they are doing. But I'm sure some of you all have built a house, and I hear from people like yourself that when you build a house, that <clears throat> you, you, you have to get together with an architect and with a general contractor, and by the time you're done with these meetings with the architect and these meetings with the GC, you really no longer care about carpet or the color on the walls. You just want a lousy house. It's like decision fatigue times a billion. And so we were on a mission trip. Uh, this is about 15 years ago. And so this, uh, this is a photo of, I think right down front is Miss Betty's daughter in the red shirt, and in the blue shirt is Miss Betty herself. And so this is why we have to use the word by you today. Because Miss Betty and her daughter live as far as I know, still live in uh, the very far western part of Louisiana. We would stay in this really small church um, in Orange, Texas, which is a really small town in Texas. We slept in their Sunday school classrooms. Robin Huntley cooked us breakfast in their fellowship hall. Then we load up and drive across the border to um, the western side of Louisiana to the work site, which is what formerly used to be Miss Betty's house. Now, her adult daughter has special needs. Miss Betty, is, Miss Betty is widowed and cares for her in her home. So when Hurricanes Katrina and then Rita came through, they didn't hit her house specifically, but all of that storm surge came through, uh, pushing up through the rivers and through the streams and through the creeks and into, you know the word, the bayou. Now, it was fine when Miss Betty's house was here and the bayou was here, but Miss Betty taught us what happens when there's a hurricane. And so now we're gonna to have to take a trip to West Louisiana. They don't have bayous in West Louisiana, they have bayous. So say it with me like you're in West Louisiana, bayou. So that bayou that used to be back there was now you know, in her house. And so her house was condemned, it had to be torn down and insurance does what sometimes insurance does. And they really didn't help her much, so she was stuck in a terrible spot. Enter Grant Harrington. 
Now, this is Grant Harrington as you've never seen him before. You may have seen Grant Harrington teaching middle schoolers or leading a great trip to camp, but this is Grant Harrington, the GC. Grant would tell you the same thing I would tell you. Like when I'm on a job site, if you can show me exactly what to do and it's a lot of hours, I'll just do that thing. So Grant was taught how to use a planer because the person on the site was following the plans for the house that said these boards that we like cut from a tree it was a whole process. Anyway, Grant was making them level. And it was important that they were level because we all wanted to get to this one spot so, so, so much. And that is where on top of those floor joists we're laying subfloor, I think it's called. Um, it's the stuff that locks together and you like put your carpet pad over it. We wanted to be laying subfloor because we didn't drive 17 or 15 people down a thousand miles into West Louisiana to watch two people hold a tape measure and measure from this concrete pylon to this concrete pylon, and then to this one, and then to this one, and to this one, and all to make sure it's square, because I'm not a builder, and Grant's not a builder, and most of y'all are not a builder, but the person helping us do this work for Miss Betty helped us understand that if we don't follow the house plans, we're gonna have a huge mess when we try to put a subfloor on an even huger mess when you try to stand up walls, and a mess that is almost incomprehensible when you try to sit rafters on top of all of this. So, like Groundhog Day, we kept moving this tape measure around. Finally, it's square, and finally, we got to move on to the part that literally every preschool kid and toddler over here could do, which is pound nails into boards. Thanks be to God, we finally got to do some of that stuff that we understood. Put the nail on the line and pound it in the board. But to get there, we had to follow the house plan. So similarly, when we design a house and we decide that we're going to build this house, we meet with an architect, we meet with a GC, we develop a house plan, and then we follow that house plan. And at the end of that house plan, we have, ideally, a structure that keeps us warm and keeps us safe and keeps us dry, and it might even look nice if we've done a good job. But whenever we take this house plan, and in the middle of this construction project, we decide, you know what I like better than concrete for my foundation? I just think rocks look pretty. And when we make that change, and then at the end of that construction, and maybe a week or two later, we find out that we don't have a house that looks anything like the plans that we developed because we fundamentally messed with part of the plan for our house. So it cannot perform its basic purposes of keeping us dry, keeping us warm, or keeping us safe because we changed the house plan without consulting the architect, without checking with the GC to see if maybe this is a good idea, bad idea. I don't know. We're just kind of by the seat of our pants, just trying stuff. And so the result is a disaster. I'm gonna make a shift. I think you can follow me. Our enemy knows God's plan for our houses. And so he, thereby, is attacking three parts of God's basic plan for our homes. Marriage is is part of 
God's intention for humanity from since creation. Marriage is the basis by which we move from an individual to a couple, to a marriage, hopefully to a family, and continuing on down the generations, how many humans did God make and place on the earth? And then he trusted us. Okay, so it's going to get moderately more graphic than that today. I'm going to say the word creation, and I'm going to add pro in front of it, but it won't get any more graphic than that. It's when we get to point two, and it is after a joke. So if you have people that need earmuffs, it's not going to get explicit. But I will say creation, and I will put pro in front of it. So if you don't want to explain that, we'll have a joke, and you can laugh on your way out, and then you won't have to explain that yet. But marriage is the basis of society. It's God's plan for blessing the world. When marriage flourishes, it blesses a family. When marriages flourish, it blesses a whole community. But our enemy knows this, and so he destroys the three purposes that the Lord outlined for the family. We have currently a minimum of five new believers. So let's open our Bibles and let's do it like we've never done it before. But man, this is the perfect Sunday for people who are exploring the Christian faith, who are new in it, maybe new believers. But if you find a Bible under the seat or you've brought your own, this is basic. We're going to open the cover and just turn some pages until you hit Genesis. It's just a big G and a little Genesis and a big one and a big two. So those are your chapters. And that's where we'll be, Genesis 1 and 2. And man, if it could just be this easy all the time, wouldn't that be great? Satan cuts at, he, he tries to destroy three purposes that we'll explore today that God has outlined for the family. Purpose number one, companionship. This is a quick review. Purpose number Quick introduction. We're not done. Don't you guys get up. This is an introduction. Companionship, number two, be fruitful and multiply. Number three, have dominion and rule over the earth and subdue it. So God, in, he intended, number one, companionship within the marriage. And this is in Genesis 2.18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So God intended this house plan where there would be companionship, where a husband and a wife could come together and they could share the pain of life. Uh, you've all been to a wedding, I'm sure, where the pastor says, do you take this woman, will you love her, like in sickness and in health? And, and we've probably all seen couples like that live through the health. But we've probably also seen when couples who took those vows, have lived through sickness or more sickness and more sickness. And that's what a marriage is for. That companionship is supposed to be where couples can find like support and comfort from one another in the face of life's pain. And it's also for sharing the pleasures of life. God made marriage so man and woman can grow, grow in a close relationship Together, as you've seen the triangle, the man and the woman, the, the husband and the wife, as they grow closer to the Lord, they, they grow closer together. So I think we could describe this relationship, this companionship, as comprised of three elements. And I would just, for today, submit to you that there are probably more, but we're going to say three, and that is love, 
trust, and communication. And our enemy attacks each of those, love, trust, and communication. There's a pastor I follow on social media named Pastor Vlad Savchuk. Easy for me to say. I don't know if I said that right, but he offers 10 differences, and I'm not going to exhaust the list, between lust and love, because our, our enemy offers us bait to destroy the foundation of marriage, and it's called lust. And this is the difference, at least some of them, and what I think are some pithy statements. Lust is pleasure-focused. Love is person-focused. Lust is passion outside of principles, and love is passion inside of principles. Lust does not last, and love grows old together. Lust needs bad friends, and love, love needs good mentors. Lust seeks isolation, and love seeks to build community. So lust destroys completely trust. Lust destroys any idea of companionship. It compromises communication. It's like having your brand new house built and then bringing a fire in and setting it in the middle of a house. It just, it destroys God's plan for a house. And so the enemy attacks us. Instead of love, he offers lust. He also likes to destroy the trust that we have for one another. Paul says this in Corinthians, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. I wonder if you've ever been, forget marriage for a second. I wonder if you've ever been in a relationship. Maybe it was high school. And you had a friend you thought you could trust and you told them something that you never told anybody else. And then the next day, you heard the thing you told them, and you now know what it feels like to have your trust betrayed. It takes forever for that trust to be rebuilt again, and so our enemy knows that if he wants to cut companionship out at the knees, he just has to get us to not trust one another. So he's going to offer ways for us to destroy trust, maybe with a little lie, maybe with not just talking about a really large expense that you had planned all along and you hadn't really shared it with your spouse until you drove home in it. And now you have not just a payment, but you have a counseling payment as well. You have a big marriage problem that you created by failing to communicate. You've damaged the trust. I hope that's not true for you. I had a nightmare about it once. It took me a week to get over that nightmare. It, uh, just briefly... I dream in big truck, I guess you could say. The truck was massive, but the problem was I paid the dealership to put all the cool stuff on it, and I got payments, and I didn't talk to my wife. It was bad. Maybe some of you have done that in real life, and sometimes that's a trap that our enemy offers to get us to destroy trust. Okay, third, communication. Again, love, trust, and communication, all part of companionship. Communication is a, like a cornerstone of a relationship, and not just a marriage, but a relationship. Communication is a cornerstone of good relationships. When God decided he wanted to, to develop his relationship with us, he sent prophets, he sent judges, he sent kings, and all of those tried to communicate his relationship with us, but eventually he himself came and had a face-to-face -face relationship with us.
I might be so bold as to suggest texts are okay, phone calls are all right, but face-to-face -face communication is always going to be the kind of communication that best builds our relationships. And if communication is a cornerstone, let's do our best to be the best communicator that we can be, thereby strengthening our relationships and our marriage. One man said, my wife and I, we, we have wonderful communication in our marriage. I hate, I hate to brag, but I always know what she's thinking because she tells me. And wouldn't you, wouldn't you believe it? She always knows what I'm thinking because... That's right. She tells me. That's right. Okay, you guys, you can tell that joke later if you think it's worth it. <laughs> Communication has to be constructive. It has to be open. It has to be honest. It doesn't sound like you're fat. That's, that's hateful. But it can sound like, I'm concerned about diabetes. Your family has a history. Maybe that's a little more loving. It's still a really tough conversation, but it's honest, is it not? It's honest. Our words can be weapons or they can be instruments of grace. Paul says it this way, let no corrupting or unwholesome, I don't know what your translation says, but in Ephesians he says, let no unwholesome or corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good for building up or for encouraging others. In other words, applying grace, not cutting down. God's house plan, now that was the joke I was telling you guys about. Uh, I just, I said it earlier. It wasn't Ephesians. Okay, it was a communication joke. So that's your warning. We're going to move on to the pro word. God's house plan for our marriage is, is, it's a blessing of companionship. It's built on trust. It's built on love. And it's built on communication. All right, here we go. Number two, procreation. The second purpose of marriage. If you're still in here, you've had all the classes you need to have at school. And if you haven't, Get ready, mom and dad. This is Genesis chapter one. God's house plan, uh, part number two, his house plan for marriage. Genesis chapter one, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image or after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that moves on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God designed marriages so that couples could have children and then raise them in the fear of the Lord. He designed a marriage so that, and we'll get more into this in our second and third sermon of the series, but he designed a marriage such that you and I, as parents or grandparents, aunts and uncles, can live out what we understand God's plan to be in our lives before these people while they're small. 
before they're out there in the world and unprotected and just totally onslaught with what our culture tells them to do, we get to live out before them what it looks like to have grace, what it looks like to offer mercy, what it looks like to understand God's work in our hearts and lives in transforming us to be like him. We have that opportunity while they're with us. But the enemy attacks procreation at its foundation. He attacks it in these three places that I've seen just from some basic Googling. So here's some Pew research. The enemy attacks procreation at its foundation. Families are choosing to have less children than they formerly choose, chose to have. 50 years ago, we were approximately, by our choice, 66 to 50% more fertile, depending on the variety of things we do not need to go into. The second place, the enemy divides our families. Where God has made a house, the enemy now divides our families. And so where we used to have in 19, the 60s, we used to have 87%, easy for me to say, 87% of households were a two-parent first-time marriage. We're now down to 69%. And some of that is the work of the enemy attacking our ability to fill the earth and to multiply. So this is the third attack. And this one's more sensitive. And this one is for a place like this. And this one is for a time like this. This one is rooted in our collective sin. In Adam and Eve's sin, this is not the result of your personal or my personal sin. This is infertility. That is the result of sin. The wages or the result of sin. Paul says, the wages of sin is what, Georgetown? It's death. And Christ has reversed that curse, but... Right now, we still experience the effects of that death. And I cannot explain to you why one out of four families suffer from some kind of infertility. That's a question I don't have the answer for. But I can say that there's something special about this specific body of believers where I personally have have seen this happen. We'll get to it in just a second. Some of you maybe don't know this about Georgetown Christian yet, but some of you have walked a path of infertility. And it feels lonely, and it feels terrifying, and it doesn't always feel like a walk. It feels like active drowning. Not the part where your lungs are full and you're laying on the bottom. It feels like the struggle to maybe get another breath Maybe that's the level of grief that you experienced. And then you get that breath, and you have hope again. And then you're sucked back under. And I'm not saying I've experienced all of what so many families have experienced, because I have not. But some other families, as a part of that one in four, some other families in this body of Christ at Georgetown have experienced miscarriages. And we have walked that road. Walking through the valley of the shadow of death is not a verse. It's an activity. And there's a path that 
maybe some of these families in the, this body of believers have beaten. It's a path they don't ever want to know as well as they know it. And when we don't talk about it, it becomes this terrible secret that we just don't want anybody to know about. And that again cuts at what God does at Georgetown Christian. I can't explain why or how, but I do know this very basic truth that though our enemy, our enemy tries to cut at these purposes of God's house plans for us, God has a redemptive story that he's been weaving from the time of death, from the time that sin entered the world, and he said the first gospel, and that is the prophecy that he will crush, you will strike his heel, and he will crush your head, and he's bringing that to fruition in a way that we saw at the cross, where what did God bring from death? He brought life from death. We were buried into death by baptism with Jesus Christ. And we were raised, just like dry Jimmy here, we were raised to new life by the glory of the Father, just like Jesus. Friends, that sounds right now like a Bible verse, but what I want you to connect here is that at Georgetown Christian, God does something that I have never planned for this church. Leaders before me never planned, but it's something that God does, and that is where he's gathered families who have more than one in four walked through infertility, or maybe they've walked through miscarriages, but they are experiencing God's plan, which we see in Romans 8, 15. It's going to sound spiritual again, but friends, let this be real. This is Romans 8, 15. Paul writes to the Roman church, so you've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received, there's going to be audience participation, get ready. You've received God's spirit when he what? Adopted you. So every one of us for from the beginning of time, God's plan was for all of us to be adopted into his family. But what I'm saying is that sounds very spiritual and very much like my heart is still raw and hurting and we are not fertile and we have had a hundred miscarriages. You have no idea the pain that we walk through and you are right. I don't, and God does. And his answer at Georgetown Christian, for whatever reason, is a very real and practical outpouring of this specific verse. Adoptions and foster care happen here more than other churches, and I don't know why. But the more we can point to the darkness that sin has brought into our lives and said, you're going to struggle with infertility and you're going to struggle with miscarriages, the more God's church can surround that family and say, we are going to adopt. We are going to foster. And then just like God, we're going to join him in bringing life from death. Only by his power, not for our glory, for his alone. But we're going to join him. This leads to our third point. We're going to join him in his redemptive action of restoring life from death. So number three, we, uh, we said God's house plan for us includes companionship. It includes multiplying and filling the earth. And third, we're still in Genesis chapter one. Third, we see that God says 
to have dominion or to, to rule over the earth and subdue it. And so maybe you, like I, when you hear of rule, you think of the, the college kids who are they're on campus for like the first day. They're gathered in the, the gymnasium and the dean stands up at the podium and says, all right, boys, he's got them all sitting over here and girls, he's got them all sitting over here. All right, boys, you cannot go in the girls' dorm. Girls, you cannot go in the boys' dorm. And if you're caught there, anywhere in the dorm, there's a $20 fine for the first offense. For the second offense, there's a $90 fine. And for the third offense, there's a $180 fine if you're even caught in the opposite sex dorm. And so a young man up front raises his hand when he says, any questions? Yes, sir. Um, how much for a season pass? And maybe that's what you guys think of when you hear about rules. It sounds weird to say rule over the earth. We don't even know of a king who legitimately rules. We don't know what dominion is. So uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to just take a big risk here and say the word management. All right. So just let all those bad feelings flow out of you. <laughs> Horrible feelings of management. Now imagine that you're the manager of just the garden at your own home. And your purpose is to be the manager of that garden for the blessing of your family. You can still go to the grocery store. It's okay if things don't go right in your garden. Like me, you might have some struggles in the garden. But in your garden, you have the authority to till up soil, to pull weeds, to apply fertilizer, or to water what you've planted. Well, that's what we need to think about. We need to think about management with authority. So this is, a, this is what God says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. We covered that. Now, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over everything that moves on the earth. A Hebrew poetic way of saying, have dominion over everything I have created. Everything. This is the third purpose that God has in his plans for our marriages, is that we would have dominion over the earth. He has invited us to not only bring life from death with him, he has invited us to use what he's created. So very practically speaking, that means he's invited you to use your truck. He's invited you to use your garage. I don't want to talk about my garage. It's a disaster. He's invited you to use your home. He's invited you to use even your clothing. And I don't know that it gets much more personal than that. He's invited you to use your money. And I don't want to lead you astray because it all sounds like I'm saying you own this stuff. And that's, a, that's sort of capitalism, maybe Americanism, that's it's infected our brain. And what we need to do is just allow them to redeem that and understand that you and I are stewards of what God has given us. Every single, our breath, did it come from you? Did you create that breath? I did not. I could not. Sometimes I barely can, especially when I'm jogging. But did you really go get your job? Did you really complete everything you've done in your life, just bootstrapped it? Because you're a big deal. Every single thing you and I have is from God. And so I like to think of management with authority, but I really like to think of this third purpose as stewardship. 
That means that you and I have the opportunity to take what God has given us, whatever that is, and to use it for the blessing of our family, for the benefit of others, and for the glory of God. So if you think about the garden for just a second, we started off the story of humanity in a garden. And then God said, here's this garden. I want you to flourish in this garden. And so taking care of it means that you're going to do whatever it is you do in the garden that blesses your family, blesses those who inhabit the garden, and glorifies me. And then at the end of Scripture, what do we see? Coming out of the sky, we see the heavenly city. And we also have pictures of a garden, but we have a heavenly city that's coming down. So there seems to be a trajectory towards you and I in joining God in his creative and redemptive acts all the way through Scripture. And so it really needs to look like you and I stewarding the resources that he's given us for the blessing of others and for his glory. And I think that is a really good description of what dominion looks like. Now, while God has called some people to be celibate, that's a specific calling by God alone for our second purpose of marriage, procreation, there's no exception to dominion. So you and I, no matter what, we have to be stewards for the good of our family, for the blessing of others, and for his glory of what he's given us. So part of, part of this series is just these three purposes in marriage. God gave us a marriage with these house plans, one man, one woman, forever. And he says the purpose is companionship, multiplication, being fruitful, filling the earth, and dominion. And so I'm just inviting you to bow your heads for just a second. We'll have another picture in a second, but I'm inviting you just to bow your heads and ask this one simple question. Am I following your house plans? So I'm, I'm going to pray and then I'll say amen and I want to I just talk a little more with one more picture, but Father God, we have magnified your name. We have trusted you for the salvation of our brother Jimmy. We have opened your word inspired and written by your spirit. Father, we're asking now that your spirit would be working in our hearts, in our lives. And we're asking you to, to change our hearts. You're the only one that changes hearts. For all, all those who are willing right now, you don't need to say this out loud. Say, Father, I want you to change my heart. Father, we're asking you that by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you tell us in your word that he wrote that it is to convict us of sin. Would you convict us of wherever we have erred from your plan? Father, another ministry of your Spirit is to kill that sin. Father, when you've identified that by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you help each of us to agree with what you've identified as sin and wherever we're not living with your plan and to begin a process of repentance and a process of faith believing that by your word and your spirit you kill this sin a process that you call sanctification Father would would you by your Holy Spirit be transforming us 
to be looking ever increasingly like Jesus. That we might live whole lives that reflect your love. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, We got one last picture, and we can't end without this picture. Sometimes you and I will follow the house plan, and sometimes we get ahead of ourselves, and maybe we want to jump off of the plan, and we want to do our own thing. We don't really want to follow the house plan. We don't want to follow the instructions that have been given to us. So whenever times like that come up, then there needs to be an adjustment. Jesus calls adjustments like that repentance. And it's just saying like, God, I, I've gone off the plan and I wanna be back on the plan. And so if that's something that's happened in your life, it, the invitation is for you to come to the front and meet me or to find a counselor at the Next Steps booth. Many of you just joined our church a week ago, last Saturday. Many more are new believers. And you're on a new journey with Jesus where he's transforming your life by his word and by his spirit. If you're not plugged in and you don't know where to do that, I'd invite you to find out at our next steps booth. There'll be counselors there. Beautiful. This is Stephen. Yes, this Stephen. I know. You probably want to see that beautiful pink do-rag on his noggin again. But because we followed the house plans, Uh, that we were given for Miss Betty's house. I had to wrap up a story for you. Um, You see Stephen here laying down. uh, He's just adjusting the very last row of boards before we lay down the sheets because when we followed the house plan, we laid down that very last row of sheeting and it fit perfectly. No saw, no hammering, no hoping that we can find a way around this. And we got to go back the next year and walls were up and there were trusses on and there was sheeting on the roof. We didn't have to get up there, thank God. We got to go inside and finish out a home for a person whose life was devastated. By the end of that week, you can imagine there were lots of tears. We could not believe what God had done through us in our very measly efforts. Literally a bunch of kids and a pastor. We don't build houses. But by our little efforts, God was able to change this woman and her daughter's entire future. Friends, that's a picture of what it looks like for you and I to take the smallest little steps today to make our life right, to get back on God's plan, and to take the next step of obedience. Whatever that is, I invite you to take it to His glory.